Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if you always uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. I'm here at Geek Girl Con, and we are um, in the green room, and I happened to meet another interviewer, but I, I realized that she's just as awesome to interview. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, and then also how it relates to uh, science. Cool. My name is Anango Lumumba Kasango, um, and I'm also a producer and rapper who goes by the name Samus. Um, so for those of you who are familiar with the game Metroid, it's a video game from the um, 80s that has had a, a long life um, and continues to this day. Um, and I picked the name Samus because that's the name of the main character in the video game. And in the video game, she runs around in this armor suit, and you can't really tell what Samus looks like. But when you beat the game, the armor suit comes off, and you discover that it's a woman. And as a kid, that, like, totally blew my mind. I was like, what? I had assumed that it was a dude the whole time. Um, so I picked that name because when I grew up and I started um, producing beats, a lot of guys started asking me who helped you make your beats or like, you know. I'm, just sh- <laughs> I'm shaking my head. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of disapproval around this table. Yeah. Um, so I picked that name because there was always this moment of surprise when um, usually guys would say, oh, wait, you were the person who did this? In the same way that when Samus, when you beat the game and you realize that Samus is a woman, there's this uh, moment of shock and, at least for me, excitement. Um, so, yeah, and I'm also a Ph.D. student at Cornell University in the Department of Science and Technology Studies. So that's kind of my relationship to, to science. Um, I never beat the game, so I never <laughs> No, it's a hard game. <laughs> It's like a, a very challenging game. I think I got to like the second level. Yeah. I'm a lot older than you too, so um, yeah, I gave up pretty easy. <laughs> and I was a lot. I mean, I, I should have been able to tell. Tell me about your your music and how you kind of you were saying you relate like geeky stuff and yeah. pop culture to like your music and stuff. So tell me about that more. Yeah, so um, talk about a lot of different things in my music, Um, feminism, um, issues having to do with race, issues having to do with academia and the academy, Um, but growing up, I play (laughs) nodding. Listeners, I'm nodding with my eyes wide open. Yeah, um, so I grew up playing a lot of video games and watching cartoons, so those are the things that I reference in in my verses, Um, and it seems to have really resonated with a lot of people in the sense that they're like, oh, there's this, you know, black woman geek who's <laughs> talking about her experience of just kind of waking up and trying to make it through the day, dealing with crazy, oh, I'm sorry, crazy right. academic stuff and anxious about the kind of state of things right now. I do have some stuff that's specifically devoted to talking about video games, but it, it mostly comes out in terms of the way that I, I address other topics. Like I'll, I have song, a song called Games and Cartoons um, that talks about not really wanting to interact with people and <laughs> and preferring to play games and watch cartoons instead. Um, is, is that why that was me? I, I realize that now. Is, is, is this is like a therapy session. Yeah. That is what happened. I get it now. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a song for us kind of introverts who would rather kind of be in our own heads than, yeah. than out in the universe. Um, but yeah, that's my music touches on, I think, a wide variety of things, but through the lens of, of a geek. Well, I, I don't know if I, I definitely was, am not an introvert, but I grew up in a town that was very, very um, conservative and yeah. monoracial. Yeah. That was not me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I remember just kind of 
going into Batman the Animated Series, just watching that all the time mm. and pl- playing Mario Kart and just mm-hmm. kind of really escaping into um, yeah. into pop culture, but yeah. in nerdy pop, pop culture. Yeah. I, I do want to kind of um, get like a little more information about, like you were saying, academia. Like I'm, I'm also in academia. Yeah. I, I teach physics and astronomy. I, I, I've noticed, I've seen, mm-hmm. this is my own personal experience, yeah. that, that pop culture isn't really super respected. Yes. <laughs> and I think a lot of us feel like a, a kinship and a really connection with like superheroes. And yeah. if you, if, uh, Jean Luen Yang, who, um, who writes Superman, talks about this dual identity where you mm-hmm. have this identity mm-hmm. at, in, in, the, in the world and then you have a different identity at home. Yes. And that kind of resonates with me, you know, being a mixed kid, you know, mm-hmm. Mexican and Chinese. But like, did you also find that link and do you also find that barrier in academia? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting um, because I I very much have felt almost like a kind of superhero duality there where, you know, at night I'm doing rap shows as Sam said, then during the day I'm walking the hallways as Anango, the the PhD student. And I very much sort of feel what you're saying in terms of the way that that pop culture and things that aren't talked about in a certain way in academia are looked down upon. Um, So for a long time, I didn't talk about my rap career at all with any of my colleagues. I didn't know how it was going to be received. And, you know, now that it's starting to kind of pick up a little bit of steam, we, we have conversations, but it still feels very much like this is not the space for me to talk about that aspect of my identity, which is unfortunate, you know, especially I think because as academics or, you know, future future person in the academy, um, ideally you would be able to share these things with your colleagues and, and have sort of a full relationship with the people that you're working with. But um, I think it's, it's, it can be very complicated, and especially for women, um, there's parts of our identity that we have to kind of navigate around in that space right. just to feel comfortable and to feel um, like to, to be taken seriously. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I've noticed, and this, now this is just turning into an interview about academia, but, um, <laughs> but I, I've noticed that, it, that for women, and especially women of color who mm-hmm. are very much open to our, like, how we're feeling at the time, yes. what our lives are like. We're really much like kind of hard on our sleeve kind of people. At least yeah. I, that's a very general statement. But like a, a lot of my friends and a, myself uh, kind of fall into that category. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've noticed in academia that, that that is not super welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like there's a formal face and there's an informal face. Yeah. And um, that's why I, I like what you said. It's a very, it's the dual identity that yeah. we, we kind of have to, I'm, I am not a rapper, <laughs> but, but I do this talk show. And, yeah. and, and so, and, and this is kind of almost a little bit connected to my work, but not, not mm-hmm. totally, you mm-hmm. know. So, but tell me about um, your PhD a little bit, maybe. Tell yeah. me about what you're, what you're working on. Totally. So I, as I mentioned, I'm in the science and technology studies department and listeners, you shouldn't feel bad if you don't know what that is, um, because I didn't know what that was until I I started undergrad. Um, So I I came into undergrad thinking that I maybe wanted to do sociology. I didn't have a, I wasn't one of those kids who like knew definitively what I should be doing. So I tried out a lot of different fields and I ended up taking a sociology course that was cross-listed with a science and technology studies course. And it was about sort of the, the, um, thinking about science as a, a part of like a social um, process of knowledge making, which was really interesting. I'd never thought about it in those terms. And one of the things that we talked about was like the history of the Moog synthesizer um, and like keyboards. 
And as a, <laughs> yes. yeah, so as a, you know, aspiring musician, that totally gripped me. And especially as someone who had never been formally trained in making music, I thought, wow, it's cool that I can study music but not have to be part of, like, a music department. I can think about it in a different way. Um, so I ended up writing um, a senior thesis about sort of the kind of informal networks that develop around people who are trying to produce beats and, and gender dynamics there, how it's difficult for women to enter and access these spaces because the knowledge is informal and, right. and you know, you have to... There are a lot of barriers to entry is what I kind of discovered. Right. Um, and so then when I... Um, decided to go back to grad school, I thought, okay, well, let me pursue science and technology studies further. Um, and so I, I, my advisor, the same one from my thesis, um, I'm working with him, and I'm focused on kind of uh, the politics of, like, studio spaces um, in, in, like, low-income areas and essentially what happens in spaces when there are ideas about what counts as kind of good quality music or good quality sound and, and how that plays out, I think, um, in some of these areas. So that's what my research is on. <laughs> that, that is really, really interesting. And when you were talking about the synthesizer, I was thinking about the theremin. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you, do you, did you study at all, like, the history of the theremin and how that worked or anything? It's definitely come up in some of my classes. My, my advisor, he has a, um, a kind of lengthier relationship with just history of musical instruments and specifically kind of electric, electronic instruments. So he is very much in love with the theremin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've only, you know, kind of studied through his classes and, and seen it as like a thing, a fascinating yeah. object. And, and learning that it was a part of like some popular music is weird to me. Like I think there's like a Beach Boys song, right, where there's like a theremin in the background. I was like, I can't imagine like, like this needs more theremin. Yeah, <laughs> like, yep. this needs more cowbell. Right. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you had like a superpower, mm. what would that be and what would be your origin story? Because this is all about origin stories here at Geek Girl Con, you know, and, and superheroes. Wow. So I was asked this question once. Wow. And I thought it, I was original. <laughs> no, no. This is, it's a fascinating and amazing question. And I think what it would be would be to go back in time and stop slavery from happening. You'd have to go all over. All over. <laughs> I, would, I would use my powers. I would exhaust myself going back in time to, to try to figure out how to end that. And in terms of the origin story, I'll have to think on that. Yeah. Because I want to make it good. I don't want it to sort of throw something out there. You would um, have to be some sort of f future person. F yeah, right? coming from the future, yeah. going back to the past, or um, like we you know, would have reached some critical point and made a decision as a society that we we need to send someone back there to put a stop to this. Yeah, that's deep. <laughs> I, I was like, I can fly. <laughs> well, I, th I thought very long and hard about this. So. I was like, I can, I can fly. And so I just woke up and that happened. The end. I like your story. Yeah. Wow. I got to work harder. Definitely. Definitely. You disrespecting the bee, best believe she will not be tricky. <laughs> I'm definitely so cool, definitely. I am not cool. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff, and today we're at Geek Girl Con interviewing nerdcore rapper Samus. 
how is your science that you do and how's your field? And so you have two kind of fields. You like you have rap and you have the science technology Mm -hmm. and history. How are your fields represented in pop culture? Mm -hmm. And and like, can you give me examples of when it was good or when it was bad? Or maybe it's not represented at all. I think rap maybe is, but um, (laughs) but, (laughs) but maybe maybe your PhD, not so much. I don't know. Tell me if you can think of anything. Um, So in terms of how uh, hip hop is represented, I do think that. Um, so the the genre that I'm in is a genre that's called nerdcore, or a lot of people put me in that in that kind of category. And it usually it's typically like white guys rapping about their lives. And so I think in that regard, I'm represent something kind of different um, in in like the conversation that I'm trying to create. Um, so that pop culture is pop culturally is how I would say nerdcore is represented. And then in terms of science and technology studies, I don't even I'm trying to think how grad students are represented as right. being kind of sad, sad and but that's true and, but that is a true thing <laughs> I, I the the nerd core that you speak of i saw mcp pants yes. sorry yes. so M- mc chris sorry is his name <laughs> Not, but you know also known as mcp pants yeah, yeah i opened for him one time <laughs> where did you open because this was in spokane this was in uh, brooklyn in brooklyn okay. he was on, he's on a tour right now with another one of my friends um named Me- mega ran so that's great. And I actually, I just got a little He's the best. Quad. Yeah. No, MCP Pants is MC Chris. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. So you were saying, sorry, you just got a little meat wad. Oh, yeah. I just, um, I was at Comic-Con, um, New York Comic-Con, right before coming to this just for a, a day. And I was doing a thing with like Adult Swim Games and they gave me a little meat wad guy. So I'm just so happy. I feel so blessed. <laughs> So, I mean, so ner- Nerdcore is, I think, getting a little more respect yeah. nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. I mean, at, at South by Southwest, there's an official Nerdcore stage, and I think there's now a, a recognition that this is like a, a form of rap that people can't really just put in a box or kind of call niche or um, that there are people who are really taking this seriously and who have built whole careers and lives around it. So I, I hope that it's getting more credibility at this point. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <Awesome. laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. Sorry, I kind of cut that off real quick. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add? Um, so I have a an album that's going to be dropping. I'm not sure when this is airing, but the album will be dropping on October 28th. But yeah, so pick it up, please. It's called Pieces in Space, and I would love you forever if you could do that. We, we already love you. You're awesome. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You just heard our interview with Samus, who is an amazing rapper and PhD candidate in science and technology studies. Her new LP, Pieces in Space, is currently out right now. Please check it out at samusmusic.com. That's Samus with two M's. If you'd like to hear more from Samus, check out the Season 3, Episode 6 of PhD Divas. It was amazing. And now for our interview with famed science communicator, Summer Ash. This is Spark Science, uh, sharing stories of human curiosity. That's our tagline. And this is Regina Barber-DeGraff, and I'm here at Geek Girl Con, second day in a row here. And I'm here with the great science communicator, Summer Ash, who I'm geeking out over. How are you doing? 
I'm doing excellent. I'm so excited to meet you because I love your costume and it was so much fun to meet you yesterday. So I'm excited to be here now and talk about sparking curiosity. Yeah. I'm going to start with what are you here for? Because I know you did a panel on um, Star Wars, Worlds of Star Wars, and I've talked to a couple other people, but I kind of want to talk to you about science outreach and then we'll kind of go in the Wayback Machine and talk about how you got into it. Um, so I came to Geek Girl Con actually primarily to participate in the DIY science zone because I'm friends with a lot of the other scientists that do it. Some I know in real life and some I've never met, but we're friends on Twitter and I see them tweet about it every year. And I know um, Rachelle is the one who founded it and she does amazing science communication and she's so great um, communicating science and reaching out to underserved communities and everything like that. And so the DIY science zone my impression is it's amazing. I've heard that this year it's even better than it's been before. So, like, I came at a great time. Because they, they put plastic on the ground. <laughs> yeah, because there's comets and there's other chemical uh, substances that get spilled around. So it's very well protected. But it's in a great location. Um, it's very central. And there were at least 15 different tables going with 15 different experiments. And it, ran, it runs all day, both days. And we just had the best traffic and the best time with all kids and families and everybody excited about science. So we were here last year and we recorded and we spent our whole time recording in the DIY zone. And my, my daughter, who is um, seven, she was six at the time, went to every single table. And it's just amazing what they did this year and what you're talking about. They put it right next to registration. So people are coming to this con and the first thing they're just hit with is hands-on science, which is just amazing. So I, I love it too. Can I ask you, though, how did you get into science communication? We'll come back to uh, exoplanets. It's kind of a long story, or it's a long wavering, you know, like a long winding road story. Um, I, first of all, I've always been interested in space. That was something that I think was, I was born with, because I don't have an origin story for that. I was just always looking up at the moon and then looking up at the stars and then dragging other people outside to do the same thing. So I knew I was going to do space things. Uh, I ended up doing, uh, going into aerospace engineering first. So, but I'll I'll jump ahead. So I was studying in grad school, studying astrophysics in England, and I loved listening to podcasts as I walked into the department because I lived a little bit ways and I would have a nice walk. And I was listening to a podcast. There was a short-lived podcast called The Bryant Park Project on NPR that was NPR trying to get a younger audience interested and having a morning show where people, the the radio people talk to each other and not just at the audience about current events. So it was a, bit, a little bit hip. It had um, news segments, but it had pop culture segments, all these things. And then they would have an NPR news person come on to do a couple stories occasionally. And one time the person came on to tell a story about Voyager leaving the solar system. And with the Voyager probes, there were two, and they went out in two different directions. And so we had two different estimates for a particular change in the solar system, in the, the, the space that they were going through. And they turned out to be at different distances. So the tagline for the story was that the solar system was dented, which is a whole other problem in itself. But so they got the whole story right. But then at the end, when she came to like summarize, she said the universe was dented. And I was like, that is a whole different ballgame. So I wrote in because I was like, I love you guys. And um, I just want to tell you that I do this stuff. And the universe is a different kind of worms. Let's not even go with the shape of what it is. Um, and so they contacted me to give me a correct, do a correction on air. And then I wrote back and I was like, you guys should do more science. And they said, do you want to help us do that? And I said, yes. 
so you've been doing this for a while. So I started, yeah, that was um, 2007, maybe? Because the, the show actually got canceled nine months later. But I got a relationship, not because of me, I did not cancel the show. So I had a relationship with the producers there because I love the show. I got to go visit them once and meet them in person before they got canceled. And that got me interested in writing. I was always possibly interested in it, but I didn't necessarily see it as something that I would do a lot of. But I really enjoyed it, trying to translate fun stories that I thought um, that were geeky and about some new science discovery and write about it and say, hey, this, here's why this is so cool, why I find this so cool. So I was writing for them, and then they, uh, the show got canceled, and all of those producers actually scattered and ended up at other cool places. And they still, I still work with them in random times to this day. So they sort of really got me, got me going. Well, I mean, I, th- I think that's a that's a really important, you know, lesson for our listeners that like you need to be like courageous a little bit. You need to like take these risks of being like you wrote that thing, you know, that letter you you wanted to make co- um, connections. And I think a lot of us are just too scared to to do those steps. And they're re- they're really not that big, right? Like writing that letter probably didn't take you that much time, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. So it was just like an email of two sentences. <laughs> But you know what is really funny is that I grew up super shy. And so younger me would never have foreseen older me doing these types of things. And so actually when I think about it too, I'm like, I don't know where that came from or when it started happening. But it just became this thing more not trying to get in places, but just trying to connect and saying, I like what you're doing. I think it's cool. And I'm going to tell you that. And then I'm going to tell you maybe this part's really cool and you, it would be really cool if you did this. And I know about that stuff. And so if you want to know more, like, let's talk. I always think networking has got a reputation as like this dirty word, but it's really just being interested in what people do and starting conversations with them about it to learn more. I think it's just sharing your passions, right? Like, so I, I feel like um, they're like, how, how do you find connections? Like, I think it's if you're truly passionate about something, somebody who is also truly passionate about something will connect and they'll be like, oh, my God. I remember when the Harry Potter theme park had just opened. And I don't know if listeners, I've already told this story. I'm sorry if I have. Um, but it had just opened and I went on this camping trip with these people that um, some of them had had never read the books, like didn't really know too much about it. And I was just geeking out. I was like, I want to go. Like, this is what I plan on doing. And this is what the castle looks like. And I've been watching videos. And this one guy comes up to me and he's like, I don't even like Harry Potter, but I really want to go to Harry Potter theme park now. <laughs> just hearing you talk about it. And I was like awesome definitely i'm not a pony for some of y'all definitely need a tony definitely i don't gotta talk about swag definitely because you don't ever really have to ask definitely we just made a song on the word definitely and now we got you doing the jerk definitely these are just a couple of perks when you're definitely in with your verse i'm winning see the definition of first definitely If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. We're talking about the intersection between geek culture and science at Geek GirlCon. I wanted to ask you, because you say you you did grad school in in Cambridge, and when I was um, growing up, that was always, like, my dream until I I gave up on my dreams. Like, in the beginning of Zootopia, they talk about that, giving up on your dreams and settling. But how did did that come about? Like, what's that story? So the long winding road, so what I was mentioning before is that I ended up going into aerospace engineering. So I used to want to be an astronaut growing up. Uh, It turns out I was willingly lying to myself about my eyesight. (laughs) 
just ignoring the fact that I knew it wasn't good enough. But either way, I was I was always drawn to engineering because it was tangible. And I felt like forces on things and building things that I could relate to that. And it seemed intuitive. Not that I was like um, an A student, but it's just the subject really drew me. And so I studied mechanical engineering as an undergrad. And it overlaps enough with aerospace that my guidance counselor was like, you can work in aerospace, like just take mechanical. Because there was no aerospace major at the time. So I ended up working in aerospace. I ended up working at Orbital Sciences, which is now Orbital ATK. Um, and they are located outside of D.C. That's where I grew up. And so I did an internship there and had such a great time that I came back to work um, after finishing college. And I worked on an X-34 project. It was a NASA contract. It's like an X-vehicle, like the X-1 that broke the sound barrier and the X-15, which is the Blackbird. Um, so the X-34, the 34th X-vehicle, like each X-vehicle has its own technology to prove or barrier to break kind of thing so ours was just trying to make a more reusable launch vehicle so like the space shuttle um i think there was something about i don't remember the number of people but it takes a obscene number amount of people and six months to turn it around after one launch so the goal of this was to try and do a launch um within uh two weeks and like 100 people and also then an emergency 24-hour turnaround and then also just test a lot of new technology. So it was an unmanned vehicle. It was much smaller than the space shuttle, but it was like a winged um, aircraft. Like and exactly, yeah. <laughs> so it had a, a new type of engine. It had new types of thermal blankets. It had new autonomous flight software, things like that. Unfortunately, like a lot of things, uh, Congress controls what NASA can do because it controls the budget. And so we actually got canceled in the wake of some faster, better, cheaper that old NASA motto, um, some incidences that Congress said, oh, you're, this is bad, you're not doing it right, and um, you're taking too many risks. So the funding got canceled, and I decided to go back to school. And I went um, to a place called the International Space University, which sounds fake, but it's totally not. It's in space. It's in space. All my friends were like, someone's going to astronaut school. And I'm like, dope. Actually, it's really different from that. But it was amazing. It was an international program. But it taught you all about the space industry, which I already was sort of coming from one corner of. And it was interesting to get these looks into um, man program management and business and marketing and launch vehicle design and spacecraft design and space law. So it was kind of an amazing. It was, a, it was basically a year that probably changed my life because, first of all, it was my first time going abroad for a long period of time and studying abroad. And it was 46 students from 23 different countries in my class, which was amazing because I, you know, just having exposure to people that have different backgrounds, have different experiences, have access to different resources or less resources than you grew up with, just have such a different perspective. And it, as somebody from the U.S., you know, the superpower of the world, it was really eye-opening to hear um, from other students what, how our country is viewed. Yeah. <laughs> Always, nice. Always nice. But no, really educational. So I was super grateful for that because, you know, you don't get that perspective when you're here in the States. And you don't really see how the world fits together more. So it was transformative year, and there was a chance during the year to do an internship. Um, they called it a professional placement, but it was basically three months anywhere in the world based on your interest and the school's ability to secure something for you. 
So there weren't like set places that you could go. There were places that students had gone before, so there was a chance you could go. But I said, I want to go where there's telescopes because this is a very unique opportunity. And so I want to go to one of those like big observatory kind of places. So the school uh, worked its magic, and I did an internship at the astronomy department in the University of Hawaii. So I lived in Manoa for three months, and I got to go over to the big island, to Mauna Kea, three times. I helped a postdoc do some observing up there, because UH has their own telescope up there. But it was just amazing to go to the summit there um, and see, see astronomy from the perspective of what it's like as a profession, because it had always been not really a hobby, but just a huge interest of mine, but I'd never been immersed in it academically. And that made me decide, yeah, I really want to study this now. So I knew as an engineer, you don't take as much physics and math as astrophysicists do. You know, you take the middle track sort of thing, so to speak. At my undergrad, there was like the lower track for just checking a box, and there was the middle track for engineers, and then like a top track if you're going to go into physics and science and math. So I took a year off to do applications, but also to actually take some classes at the local community college, and I loved it. And I have no idea how it happened, but I got into Cambridge I only applied to like five schools, but um, I wanted to stay abroad because I loved that experience so much. But I didn't speak a language well enough to study in it, so I was like, it has to be a school, an English school. <laughs> You're like, in England. Yeah, and England is a country of choice. But you know what? Strangely enough, when you go there, it's like being a divided by a common language. I o underestimated the culture shock level because I knew that we used all the same words, but, you know... <laughs> Just the day-to-day -day life and relationships and everything was so different. So that was a whole nother. We can do another podcast on that. Yeah, no, I, just to add to that, when I was 18, my husband and I, he was not my husband at the time, but um, we saved up money and we went to Manchester. That was the first place we went out of the country was Manchester, England. And um, we got there and people were like, why are you here? And I was like, Morrissey? <laughs> And, and we were talking to like a kid, so he's like not Oasis, you know, because this was 1999. And I remember getting off the plane in Manchester. A solar eclipse was happening at that moment when we got out out on the plane. 1999, you can look it up. In August of 1999, there was a solar total solar eclipse, and that could be seen in the UK. And we get off, and we get to our hotel, and it's run by. Um, a Pakistani, a British Pakistani family, and I could understand them perfectly, and then I leave the hotel, and I couldn't understand anyone. And I thought I was a pretty well-rounded person, had met many people, at least in the U.S., and I could, for two days, I couldn't understand a Manchester dialect. Um, I have a friend who's from Manchester, but she probably was surrounded by a family and like a you know a boarding school and stuff so she has a, this more polished accent but yeah it's surprising how different the accents can be around london and in the east and the north and the south and yeah they're so wild yeah but i mean i guess the same for us but you're used to knowing what the accents are and so you're really your ears are attuned to them but like appalachia has some really thick accents that are, and the different words sometimes too. Yeah, and Louisiana and Creole and things like that. So, and sometimes, you know, super thick Boston accent. I mean, it's interesting, like how I love language. It's really cool.
If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff, and today we're at Geek Girl Con interviewing science communicator and astronomer Summer Ash. So I went to England and I studied at the Cavendish Laboratory, which so England, the funny thing about um, astronomy related topics at Cambridge is that there's three different departments that do them. So there's a, a group, the astrophysics group in the physics lab, which is the Cavendish. And then there's the um, IOA, the Institute of Astronomy, um, which is literally across the road. And it's literally across the road because they used to be together. And then two um, of the premier people had a fight over the Big Bang. And one guy said, the Big Bang happened. The other guy said, screw you. It didn't happen. I'm going across the road to start my own group. True story. Yeah. And then there's cosmology that's in the mathematical department. And that's where um, Newton was. And that's where Stephen Hawking is. So it's like Trinity, right? Oh, Trinity is the college. So it's funny because so, yeah, there's, there, it's like, um, I can't remember. It's called like the collegiate system, something like that, where there are colleges which are almost like dorms. They're like houses, except that a lot of times you have so a lot of your learning is also based in the colleges. So you have tutors. Um, it's called uh, supervisors, supervising. So it's more like a one-on-two, one-on-three uh, instructor-to-student ratio that supplement the, the classes that they're in and that kind of stuff. But yeah, so the departments are separate. So you, everyone belongs to a college. You're associated with a college. But when you're there for grad school, that's less of an important thing. Or when you're there at least for um, a, not a one-year program, you don't spend a lot of time. That's usually just where you sleep or where you can get some free meals and do some other activities based around your college. Otherwise, like any grad student, you live in the department. All right. So how long were you there? Um, I was there for four years straight. But a whole other conversation that we can also have, this podcast or another. Uh, like many grad students, I had my first major depressive episode. And I was like, what is happening? I don't understand what's happening. And, you know, it was a combination of being in England, thinking that it was going to be a more familiar, finding it a lot harder to make friendships and relationships, and not having the sun, not only because it's gray, but because it then goes down so early during the winter and rises really late. And then it also turned out I, ha I had some illness as well, but um, it was like a perfect storm. So I was sort of in and out, um, and I ended up leaving before I finished. And then I somehow ended up with getting like my dream job at Columbia. And so I tried to kind of go back several times and finish. And then I had a whole other story, which can be a third, fourth podcast. I had open heart surgery. And so in the recovery phase of that, I realized that I was um, – I was doing what I wanted to do and I felt like trying to go back and finish was like going pulling me back in time and putting this current life on hold and I was realizing that I got what I wanted out of it I was really just wanted to study astronomy and learn more about it and I got to do so much I did four years of research and I knew did enough to realize that uh, I didn't think research life was for me but I could totally be someone's research assistant because I enjoyed doing it but I enjoyed seeing what everybody else was doing too much to really stick to one track and want to just 
study that for the rest of my life. So it was a fantastic experience. And while I was there, I also got more time, more chance to do some outreach and talk to students. And I was like, I'm really liking this. I want to do it. I want to do more of this. As, you, as you're telling me this story, I'm just like totally identifying with everything you're saying. Um, I, I did finish. Um, my advisor had left out of the country <laughs> and, and, and I, um, I had to go to Canada once a month, every, every couple of months. But I also had several, several breakdowns. I did not have the, the illnesses you had or, or even the culture shock because I was still in Washington State. But it, it is hard. I finished my research and I, I'm thinking to myself, do, do I really need to do the research or am I doing the thing that I like now? I, I'm, you know, at Western, I, I do outreach and I do STEM inclusion work and, you know, work with clubs and science communication. But yeah, no, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, I feel like... There's, we need to tell grad students it's okay to follow what you're passionate about. And if you're not passionate about research, you are not a failure. Like, that's what we really, really, really need. Because when you're at that lowest point and you're like, this computer program is making me sad. Like, just looking at this, you know, research notebook makes me want to cry. Then you're like, oh, I need, either need a break or I need to readjust what is actually important to me. I think part, so I'm hopeful and optimistic that it's changing, especially with a lot of the young academics um, in uh, early career positions that will eventually be rising up to be the main faculty across the country and hopefully internationally as well. But I do feel there's like this leftover thing for whoever started it, who knows, but that you're expected to do nothing but work. And um, you're expected to, I think it's left over from this whole idea of apprenticeships. And so this whole idea that your advisor is the master and you're the apprentice, and it, the idea is that the apprentice follows in the master's footsteps. And so there's this expectation that all of the students that are being supervised are going to do exactly what their professor does. And that doesn't have to be the case because also the school, the, the skills that you learn, especially in science programs, are transferable. I mean, critical thinking skills are invaluable across the board. Problem solving skills, exactly. But and then sometimes I think it's it's they're just unaware. A lot of advisors are unaware of the fact that their students want to do something else because they keep it hidden, or they're unaware that they of what the other options are. Like that's all that they know, so that's what they know to train students for. A lot of people think that if I don't know this or I'm not good at it, then it doesn't have value. So like science communication, for instance. Well, that's a whole other can of worms too. That that sometimes. Uh, Doing the outreach is when you're not doing research, and so it's also sometimes counted against you, which is really not the way it should be. So yeah, I think that grad students need to um, prioritize self-care, and the PIs need to allow that and accept it and support it. And also just the fact that, yeah, that the grad students don't have to be mirror images of them. And that's even that's better for the world, actually, if everybody's slightly different and everybody has different skill set and everybody has a different interest and a passion, but they can all collectively work together towards a common goal. 
You know, yeah, I mean, that's how problems are solved is when you have these different viewpoints. But I like how you're talking about this this idea of mirror imaging, because being in academia for as, as long as I've been, you kind of see this. They keep on talking about the pipeline. You do a lot of inclusion and outreach work. They like, why aren't these students? Why are we not graduating students from diverse backgrounds? Where are we losing them in the pipeline, these leaky pipelines? And the more articles I read about, it's not a it's not a pipeline. And um, this book had talked about a network. We call it the STEM network instead of the STEM pipeline because even that word, even that phrase has this buried bias that if you want to be a scientist, this is the path you do. You do undergrad in science, you do grad school in science, you do a postdoc, and then you get a, a, a tenure track job, then you have to do research and publish. That is your path. So people do not always use use that pipeline or go, go along that route or that pipeline, but the people we see in academia have. And the, the system has been built so those people are favored. So That's such a good point because um, when I was working on the Columbia Bridge to PhD program, Marcel Agueros, who was the program director and I was the assistant director, when we would have the orientation at the beginning for the new scholars, he would show that graph of this, or not the graph, the infographic of the STEM pipeline and say, you know, here's why I don't like this, because we shouldn't be viewing it as we're um, losing these people. But it's a every point is a decision point, And so they choose where they go. This isn't like the one true path. And, and we should value those other paths. Um, I, I think this is really important to kind of talk about, and we can kind of get into what you do at Columbia University then, because I'm very, very much interested in the bridge program, because one, I would have loved to have it if, if it would have existed. Some are saying I would have loved it. Such an amazing resource, because yeah. it's all about trying to get students to realize how you have to start thinking differently from the way that you're trained as an undergraduate to the way that grad school works and what you want out of grad school and what grad school is sort of for in the in the bigger sense not this limited sense that we were just talking about but it's a yeah but it's a transition because um, as an undergrad a lot of the classes and the classwork I mean a lot sometimes you have group work but more often than not you sort of do it yourself and science doesn't work like that science is collaborative like not one person can know everything so Every You have teams and you have working groups and then you also just have peers and you bounce ideas off each other and you get pieces of information and give pieces of information and you work together to solve problems and come up with new solutions. And so it's, you also have to get like this, you have to switch your gears in your brain just to realize that you're not going to succeed using the same methods that you used as an undergrad. And, and I think these bridge programs also help the students that kind of not only struggle with that switching, but also just struggle with school. And you know what I mean? Like, I, I wasn't a straight-A student, and I and I got through, I, I kind of did a master's program between my undergrad and my, uh, my PhD, and people were like, don't get a terminal master's, those are worthless. But it was almost like a bridge program. I had made my own bridge program, and I went to San Diego State for a little bit, um, three years. And... I want to. I want to tell my students like, just because you're an Australian student, because you get B's and maybe the occasional C and the occasional A, you can still go to grad school. You can still follow your passion. But I'm a non-tenure track professor. But all the tenure track professors, they didn't have to do that, you know. So it's hard. It, there's not many of them that are telling these students that they can still make it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's the other problem is that um, the sort of transition or this path, like going from undergrad and doing science and then going straight into grad school, like that's a thing that is easiest for the people that have known what they wanted to do for a long time and sort of had had the foresight to see what do I need to do in order to accomplish this. They also have the knowledge of what the resources are, that who they need to reach out to and find out more about how do I do this, which class should I take, all this stuff. And not everybody has that. Reaching out is viewed as feeling like it's admitting a weakness, which is not the case at all. I mean, there can be people that, you know, are like, do this for me. But saying, I need your help. I don't know this. Um, how do I get to that place? How do I get into this program? That's just using your resources well. And so there's the people, students that make decisions much later in college that like they discover science, this is what I want to do. And then they haven't had that time to do this checklist that a lot of other students have. And so they need more time to figure out where do I go from here? How do I get to that next level? Um, and also, what do I need to get to that next level? What am I missing that I'm not going to be able to be successful? And that's what our program tried to provide. So the bridge program, so I worked on it for four years. I'm no longer on it. Um, I've been off for about a year and a half. Um, but I worked for it four years. And it's our program particularly is a non-degree program, just a certificate of completion. But it's a two-year program, heavy research, so research intense. But coursework um, is also available. So they have a... Um, they're grandfathered into a system where they can take up to two courses per semester. But we actually, most of the time, we only let them take one because balancing a full-time research assistant job, so 40 hours a week in the lab with coursework, and managing to also be able to understand or self-evaluate your progress, both in the lab and in the coursework, is something that takes a lot of practice. We drill that into them. We actually kind of throw them in the deep end but then we stand by the side of the pool with the life rafts sort of thing so that when they get to grad school and fall in the deep end, they can swim. And I totally just came up with that analogy right now and I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, so the whole thing was also, it's a heavily mentoring. So as the assistant director, I met with, it's very small scale program, so there were only five students per year on average. But mostly it's competitive because we don't have the funding. So it was limited resource sort of situation. So we didn't want it to be as competitive, but we also liked that it's intimate because if you scale up too much, then you lose that. And so the fact that both Marcel and I could know what's up with each student at any given day, as long as they were communicating, which was another thing we tried to instill in them, that you got to let us know if you need help because by the time you actually let us know you need help, it's too late and we can't help you. Both like if you're going to fail your course or if you're just way behind and you haven't talked to your researcher, haven't talked to your PI. So I would meet with them once a month, and they would write progress reports. And then we'd also have monthly um, meetings for either talking with a scientist who's in the field that can speak to their experiences, or um, workshops on writing personal statements, or um, presenting your research. 
so many of my students really need that. And it, it not only is it good to make those connections, like you were saying, but just to boost confidence, like you're, you're saying, like giving, being there so they can still swim and having those life rafts, um, life preservers yeah. or whatever. Your analogy, that was beautiful. Um, <laughs> I want to ease into science communication. So that's what you used to do, but now you're kind of doing this dream that I would love to do too. And so many, you know, so many scientists would love to be able to communicate science in a way that people can really get in tune with it. So you were just on the Star Wars, Worlds of Star Wars panel. Uh, you've done other things. You've been on Star Talk, which is why I was like, I saw your name and I was like, oh my God. Um, and you've been on Nerdist. What do you talk about when you go on those, um, to those panels and to those talk shows? Like, what is your main thing that you kind of get across, if, if there is a main thing? Let's see. If there is a main thing, it's probably that space is awesome. Um, and that it's, like, something that you should be curious about. And if not space, then something else. But curiosity. Sparking your curiosity. <laughs> because you, like, asking questions about the world around you. Um, and for me spaces that inroad um so the star talk appearance was actually more specifically to talk about women in stem as portrayed in hollywood kind of thing like the portrayal of science in hollywood but kind of with a focus on women so then the nerdists came out of that so they actually aired in opposite order but they took place um with the star talk taping first and that's where i met chris hardwick and then he had me on and we just had a whole long conversation about lots of different things but also also focused a little bit on how to get uh, girls into STEM, um, or at least get them to realize that STEM is not scary. Because also, I, my goal is not to make everybody go into STEM and not to push people into STEM, but just to sort of make it accessible. My goal is if it's um, equally accessible to everyone, then my work is done. Because we don't have to have the entire world, like we don't have to have 50% uh, men and women in every field. But the accessibility for them to be in that field should be even. And same with every minority group. Like, it should be even. Like, there should be no barriers to access. And that's a big problem that we have. So I try to focus on that. And then I get to focus on that in specifically, like, physics and astronomy, because that's the field that I know best. Um, but then I just try to use the amazingness of space. So just the fact that everybody looks up, right? That's something that everybody can do don't need money you don't need equipment and it's also just something that's common to humans like we look around us and so everybody at some point looks up and says well, what's up there what's going on what's out there um so there's a common access point and i just use try to use that to say like space is really cool and here's all the really cool things that we can learn about it with science and technology and engineering and mathematics no, I, I wanted to let you know that I was just listening to the Star Talk where, no, sorry, the Nerdist where he has Neil deGrasse Tyson on, yes. and they talked about you. I yeah. did listen to that because I was kind of curious because I was like, if he just had Neil on and they're going to talk about the Star Talk taping, like, will he mention me? He to they totally did. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I like what you were talking about when you were mentioning um, people are embarrassed to say basically that they, they need help. And I was going to say that if you're um, a, women, a woman in STEM or if you're a person of color and you have those visual, like you're definitely, people can notice that you, there's not a lot of you. It's even harder because you, you're worried about that, that they might think you're, you're less and inferior in knowledge and then you're going to ask for help. So it's just this other, this other layer that I wanted to add on to what you were talking about before. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you can't see it, how do you know that you can be it right. kind of thing? And you just need to see like there's people like me and those doing those jobs 
in those positions um, doing awesome things. So I want to be like that. But at the same, one of the things that I think that Neil actually said once, I brought the bridge students once to have lunch with him. And he made a really good point that I think is also important takeaway is that you don't want to have one person that you want to be. You want to you want to strive to attain qualities that are like a bunch of people because people are fallible and people have flaws and no one person is perfect. But you're like, I like the way he explains this or I like the fact that he works with this group and I like the fact that this person promotes this um, or this person has this skill and this person shows up in these kind of environments. And then you choose to emulate those things. You strive for those kind of things. So you sort of find um, uh, a cluster uh, of things to follow and to strive for. I do, I do like that. And I, I, I hear what he's saying. I wanted to ask just one last question yes. that I've been um, asking all of my interviewees, and it's if, if you had a superhero, um, superpower, what would that be, and what would be your origin story? And the last thing was like portrayal of women in, in, in pop culture, and if there's just one good version and one bad version you would like to, to women in science. I okay. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. So my uh, superpower is easy. I want to fly. <laughs> That's what I said. I want to fly. I mean, I love being, I love flying in planes and get a window seat. And I just sit there and look out the window the entire time. Sometimes I'll listen to music in a podcast, but I hate it if I have to like work or if it's a night flight and I have to read. Although sometimes when it's a night flight, I'm like, oh, there's Orion, there's Jupiter, there's Mars. This is exciting. So I literally sit and look out the window the whole time. And I love being up high. And then I also just love looking up, but I just love the idea of, of flying. It's hard to say what my origin story would be. I already, I had heart surgery. So I like to say that I have a bionic heart now. So maybe the surgery um, gives me some extra things. Maybe I got the heart transplant of like um, a pterodactyl or something. I don't know. So portrayal of women in STEM. Yeah. So one of the good ones that I like, the movie Space Camp, which came out in 1986. That's how old I am because I loved that movie so much. And Leah Thompson from Back to the Future of Leah, Back to the Future fame. So basically, it's not like the real space camp because this space <laughs> camp lets the kids actually sit on the shuttle while they're doing a booster test. How would they do that? And then the robot who's friends with Leaf Phoenix, who's now Joaquin, but was Leaf at the time, says Jinx puts Max in space and he caused a thermonuclear, not thermonuclear, but he caused a failure in the booster so that NASA had no choice but to launch the spacecraft. So the kids with their, with their counselor who knew some stuff. She was an astronaut candidate, so it was okay. But Leah Thompson was sort of the brainy, but really wanted to fly the space shuttle and be an astronaut. And I saw that movie either two months before or two months after. Top Gun and Space Camp came out in the same year within months of each other, and I saw both, <laughs> and I was like, yes. And I think I said that on both other things I was on. Because I, that really was. I wanted, I was like, the Jets, yes. Yeah. 
And then the space, yes. Um, so that put it all together. So Leah Thompson's character was also similar to me. She just seemed like she was really smart and she was really like book smart, which I liked books. So, I mean, I didn't, I don't mean that as a bad thing. And uh, she was just hardcore. She was Hermione in space. Yes, she was Hermione. She was totally Hermione. That's what it was. And so the other good example is Dana Scully. Oh, because she's just so skeptical and not in a, a like across the board, but she's um, critically thinking all the time. Yeah. Why is that like that? What could be happening? Yeah. And also, how can I go in the lab and verify what I might be thinking about it? Right. Also, but, but being open to yeah. information. Like yeah, she wasn't so exactly. Right. That's so the whole point. Yeah. You weigh the evidence. Yeah. She weighed the evidence, made a decision. And I thought that was and she was open to possibility, too, right. which I think you always have to be. Oh, I have to go to my panel. Because it starts in one minute. So let's just say I don't want to badmouth any examples, actually, because I feel like people at least put somebody out there in science um, as an example. And so at least we just got to put more people out there as examples of scientists in pop culture. Period. You're awesome. Stay curious. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. We just interviewed very awesome women at Seattle's Geek Girl Con. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com or kmre.org and click on the podcast link. We'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or kmre.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea that you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. You can follow us on Twitter at at SparkScienceNow. Today's episode was recorded on location in Seattle, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Our feature song today was Samus, Definitely, and Mary Jane. Spark Science is an all-volunteer-run show, and if you'd like to donate, go to KMRE.org and click on the Donate button. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc, when I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.